0: The giant thinkers. giant thinkers Giant Thinkers Podcast Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, Wonderful Giants. This is episode number 53, and today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Movement, written as MVMT. Movement are a global fashion watches and accessory brand for millennials that has sold over 1.5 million products. After almost failing out of high school and dropping out of college, our guest started his brand at the age of 22 when he was $20,000 in debt. Four years later, his brand has grown to more than $80 million in revenue and 4 million social followers. Some of the topics we spoke about include his first t-shirt business while he was in school and the action steps he took getting that off the ground, then his rise and fall in selling rave lighting accessories, his advice for growing a business from $0 to $1 million within 12 months. And how movement watches all started. So, if you're someone that's interested in designing a product and designing a thriving business around that product, then this episode is for you. Now, because I've been a huge fan of movement watches, I actually bought my first movement watch a little over two years ago now. That's when I really started falling in love with their beautifully minimal, modern design products. And Today, having the co-founder on the show was already a treat, but he's also gifting listeners an exclusive 15% off all products with free shipping. Now, I'll give you the link in a second, as I've already taken advantage of this myself and got my third movement watch. This one on my wrist as we speak, uh, you can hear the links, It's, uh, it's called Denali. It's black with rose gold, hardened mineral crystal glass and black stainless steel links. It sounds pretty sexy. It is. You've got to check out their range. No doubt you'll appreciate it. As many of you listeners, of course, love beautifully designed products. It's sophisticated and it has quality construction. You'll see it all on their website. Our guest today and his co-founder have really disrupted a multi-billion dollar industry because they saw a need to offer high quality minimalist watches that don't break the bank. Movement watches start at just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to MVMT.com dot com slash giant thinkers if you couldn't be bothered typing that that's okay head to the blog post of this episode and click the link there we're heading into the christmas shopping period and if you're like me and hate the stress that comes with parking at the shops then dealing with retail crowds you can skip all that and grab a watch or a couple for your loved ones. They make the perfect gift actually for men and women. And as mentioned, start at $95. The 15% off with free shipping is automatically activated when you visit this exclusive link. Thanks to our guest today. Head to mvmt.com slash giant thinkers. So on that note, I present to you the resourceful, determined, and inspiring Jake Cassen. Jake Kasson, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast, mate. It's a great honor and pleasure to have you on the show finally. Uh, How are you doing today?
1: Good, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for uh, having me.
0: It's fantastic. Uh, I'm super excited as well as many listeners, no doubt. First off, I have an icebreaker question for you. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Some people get stumped and and they're all originals, by the way. I'm not sure if uh, people, you know, have caught on to that, but um, yours is what is a new activity that you've tried in the last three months that you've enjoyed and that's exceeded your expectation?
1: A new activity that I've tried in the last three months. And that's a good question. I I think cooking really, actually, like I never cooked that much. Uh, I live by myself now. Um, and I don't have much time, but on a Sunday night, if I have the time, I live pretty much walking distance from Whole Foods. So, uh, just really getting in the groove and, uh, eating healthy and, and cooking your own meal. Uh, there's something about, about that. That's, uh, kind of relaxing too. So.
0: Fantastic, mate. Love a bit of cooking and, and a huge fan of Whole Foods. I'm not,
1: I'm not, I'm not good at it, but,
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> what uh, recipe have you got down pat?
1: Uh, I try to, I I keep it simple. I don't even know if you can consider it cooking, but it's, it's the baking and and barbecuing, whether it's chicken or salmon. Uh, yeah. Whole foods is again, it's because it's so close and, um, and the prices are now better because of the whole Amazon thing.
0: Fantastic. Uh, right mate. So where would you say your expertise lies?
1: You know, for me, um, I, there was, I, I couldn't really figure out what I was the most passionate about when I was younger. So whether it was, you know, in high school, I was, Pretty much uh, failing out the entire time. I uh, barely passed uh, with one letter grade. College, I dropped out after a year. I think because I was unsure of what I wanted to do. I I, I would never consider myself an expert at one thing, but um, I learned. I taught myself Photoshop. Taught myself how to film and, and you know video edit. I taught myself how to create you know websites with uh, different e-commerce uh, tools. So, you know, I wasn't an expert at one thing, but I was pretty good at a handful of things. And I think that's one thing that even as I've continued to scale on my kind of journey, uh, understanding different elements of my business and not being an expert at one thing um, has really helped me because, um, you know, I think looking back to is like, sometimes I get to a certain point where I, I want to be an expert at at something, whether it's design or it's, uh, figuring out, you know, how, how to code a website. But if I'm an expert at that, I can't think I can't run the business. So I really don't think you can do both at a certain scale. If you're, you know, I, I think at a certain scale, you can really be an expert. And, and if that's what you want to do, then great. For me, I realized that I, I need to bring talented people around me. And rather than being an expert at one thing, I needed experts surrounding me, which will inherently make me, you know, smarter and better. Uh, and probably smarter than I could have been, you know, just kind of independently looking at something. But for me, it's been critical thinking too, which is just, you know, kind of solving problems like this, mm. uh, trying to figure out is it, do I invest my time 100% here or do I look at big picture and, and bring on more talented people? So, um, and I think that's honestly, like for, when I look at most, like you even hear Steve Jobs, like he didn't know how to code at all. It's insane to, to hear some of these stories about, some of the founders who you think are going to be experts in a certain field, but really what they are is they, they're knowledgeable about, you know, a bunch of elements of their businesses and, um, they do a good job at bringing very, very intelligent smart people and surrounding themselves with them. So I think that's it. And then also just having the vision, uh, of like where to go. So I think those are, those are like right now. And I've struggled with that because, I was always like, "Am I gonna be the best I wanted to be the best, right or or at least you know in the top skill set uh percentile right? So I looked at design and I was like, you yeah, know, I'm not that artistic, I like Photoshop, but then I looked at editing videos or you know uh cinematography and i and I enjoyed that. I liked film, but I wasn't really I wasn't gonna be the best at that um so but but kind of pursuing all of these and getting deep into it enough to to learn uh, what I liked and didn't like and and kind of what skill sets I had, I think now I know that if there's something I want to put my mind to, you know i can I can learn it enough where uh, I'm definitely above average, but i'm not an expert uh, at it um, so
0: yeah, well, it sounds to me that you know because I can kind of see where you're coming from in terms of the expertise of um, being diverse in many different parts in order to make a thing run. I think that's a very, very uh, hard skill. And, and I applaud you for for your expertise in that. Now, can you tell us a little about your childhood and how you grew up?
1: So I grew up in basically an hour outside of Los Angeles. Um, and now with traffic, it's even longer. It's more like an hour and a half, two hours but it was a small, relatively small town, nothing, I mean, for, for at least for in LA. Um, and again, I mean, I think I was kind of lost. I didn't really like, I didn't like school or high school. I was always trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be successful and I wanted to to be happy and enjoy what I was doing. I had, you know, kind of uh, financial goals, but also just lifestyle goals of, you know, family or living a certain lifestyle, taking vacations. Those are all the things my dad really instilled into me. Uh, and I saw my dad's business. He was an entrepreneur. He did something in, in like credit reports and, uh, he had a business for 22 years. And with the economy, I saw a, 20, a a 22 year old business with, you know, 50, 60 employees go under in a matter of essentially two years, uh, and went through our savings and, and really just like went from kind of on top of the world to, to, you know, to starting over again, uh, except this time with, you know, a family to feed and, uh, in a, a kind of a herd economy. So I saw that. And, um, I think at an early age, my dad always trying to instill some type of entrepreneurship. He was, you know, having me paint curbs or, um, encouraging me to, to just do anything for money. We went and sold mistletoe around the holidays to neighbors for five bucks and wrote a little poem on it. And those were his ideas. I actually hated it. Cause I didn't like the act of actually the, the labor of selling. I wasn't the best salesman. And so, I think you learn again, like, okay, it's great to make money, but I wasn't really enjoying the, the, I was enjoying being in the, in Valencia where I, where I'm from, it was gets a hundred plus during summer. So I'd be on, you know, asphalt painting curves in a hundred plus degree weather. I went with paint and everything. It wasn't fun at all. So, um, but I learned what I liked and what I didn't like. So when I was, um, and then I had some other ventures, like tiny stuff. I sold lollipops in my uh, elementary school and stuff like that. But when I was about, I think 16 or 17 years old, I had found these t-shirts on, uh, eBay, I believe, or it was YouTube or something. And, and basically what they were is they, they, uh, electroluminescent where they, they lit up to, to sound. So they had this little, not LEDs, but it was, they're called electroluminescent. So like a, almost like an led panel on your t-shirt and a little, a uh, little pack that was sewn into the T-shirt that would light up to, to sound. Uh, and it was an equalizer. So it looked like it was on a stereo and, uh, it would light up to sound. It was, it was pretty unique. I mean, it was stitched together. It was definitely more of a novelty, fun product, nothing that you're going to wear every single day. Plus you had a, you know, a pack of four batteries sitting in your shirt. But, um, so I, I saw this and I ordered one and it was, it was cool. I was 16. I just wanted something that was like fun and crazy. And, um, I, I went to my dad, I was like, you know, you think I could sell these? <laughs> He said, I don't know, go, go do some research. So I went online and found, I went on Alibaba. This is like when Alibaba was just starting off, right? Or, uh, somewhere around then. And, um, I got a quote and it it cost a few thousand dollars. I went to my dad and I said, can I have a, like a few thousand dollars? It was the first time I've ever asked my dad for (laughs) a few thousand dollars in investment, if you will. And he said, listen, I'll give you money. But if you don't sell these t-shirts, which was about 200 of them, uh, the car that I, you know, my, my basically hand-me-down car, we're going to sell it as you know collateral. Um, and I don't know that he would have actually done that or not. And because then he would have been responsible for driving me everywhere, but he definitely, you know, ingrained it into my brain that I got to sell these, these t-shirts. So, uh, I go to third street promenade here in Santa Monica and cause it was the only place that was like really touristy also near the beach. It was just sound like a fun place to go and every weekend over summer i had my friend drive me cuz i i didn't have my driver's license yet i i'd give him basically you know commission uh and we'd go down there with a two backpacks full of t-shirts and the t-shirts on and and just learned how to sell i mean i am not a salesman by default by any means i literally went i mean luckily the t-shirts sold themselves but i went down there and would just start you know slinging t-shirts and uh you know i'd do deals for three of them and uh and over a two-month period, I sold 200 t-shirts. And the one thing I kept getting from when people would come up to me was, Hey, w- what's your website? What's your website? And I didn't have a website. So if I'm going to continue to do this and make more money, I need a website. Hmm. And then that led me into starting, a, um, into starting a, an e-commerce store selling these t-shirts where I did some viral marketing stuff and it ended up exploding and, and just really got me into the whole e-commerce, uh, I guess, industry, if you will.
0: Right. Okay. So that was your first business transaction, would you say, when you were 16, uh, high school kid?
1: That was my first real one. I mean, I was, again, selling lollipops out of my backpack, making a couple hundred bucks, but this was like strangers really being able to sell a product that uh, to, to people I've never met before. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely my first real go at it on my own, too.
0: Awesome. And so the, I guess the unique selling proposition of the shirt was the the lighting component.
1: Yeah, it was a novelty, fun—you've never seen it before. You clap your hands, it would light up to the, the sound of your hands or your voice. Uh, if you went to a concert, uh, this was right when like EDC, like Electronic uh, Daisy Carnival, and all these different like. Music festivals, Coachella, were going on, so people would wear stuff like that, and just looking for the next cool thing. Really, I didn't know where it was going to go or, or how scalable it was. But again, I hated school. I was, I was basically failing out of high school, and you know, I started making uh, thousands of dollars doing this, and it quickly uh, all my attention was drained from school and directly into okay, like where does this go
0: And and on school. If you were to say, pick three words that uh, would stand out to you now looking back, um, what three words would you choose to describe your high school experience?
1: Uh, Three words. Um, I don't know about three words, but I'd say out of place. Mm -hmm. Out of place. That is three words. There you go. Out of place. Yeah, I just felt like uh, I didn't resonate with a lot of people uh, at my high school. just because everyone was talking about college and you know where they were going and uh and and were ex- like i don't know they were just thriving at school in in the environment that it was, and I absolutely i i bad a d d too so so like it was ridiculously difficult for me to concentrate on something that didn't uh pique my interest so i just and and I don't know i think where i'm where I'm from too like you had a handful of like some of the more popular kids kind of didn't have their shit together. And then you had some people who were going after the college route because that's kind of what their parents wanted them to do. And then you had me who was like, you know, a good kid. I got into some trouble, but I didn't really want to associate with with the kids that were getting into too much trouble because I knew that was a bad idea. And then the kids that were going to college, that route, like I just wasn't good in, in like the academic side of, of school. So I was kind of like, I don't know, where do I fit in? What am I going to do here?
0: I think it's actually um, really powerful to hear you say that, because I think um, now more than ever, it it's only now starting to come out of the woodwork more, but I feel that this type of student that you were is so evident in many students you know, but perhaps maybe they've just been too afraid or there was something that was stopping them from really speaking out. And so therefore they're, they're, they're more focused on trying to fit in than trying to cultivate, um, a real sense of, um, I guess, authenticity within themselves going, Oh, okay, look, I'm trying to, push this boulder uphill. It's not me at all. Um, and so my thinking is how do you navigate your way through that? Like for me, the first thing that comes to mind is people, you know, people that can advise or guide or mentor you. So who guided you through that place while all your, you know, student friends, um, your, you know, your classmates and all this were aiming for college. How did you navigate your way through it?
1: You know, I'm actually. My I think my dad did a really good job because he didn't. I didn't have the pressure of grades Uh, like most parents did. It was like if you don't get B's or above, you're grounded, right? My dad wasn't really like that. He was, you know, I I wanted me to get C's and above, and I, you know, I think setting the kind of the uh, what do you call it, like the the benchmark there. uh, I, I didn't even get to that stage always. I had some D's, C's, and I'd have an A in gym or something, right? Um, but I don't know. I think just understanding that like the whole form of grades and like the way school is structured is some kids just don't thrive in that type of, um, environment. Uh, so I think it's flawed to begin with. And I think my dad did a good job is like understanding that it was more about the experience of, of, uh, socializing, right? Like just being with a bunch of people like that, that's just, that's real life, right? It's getting you prepared, for bullies or confrontations or making friends, whatever it may be like that is the real world is a much scarier place. And, um, you know, anything from junior high to, to high school, it's a good practice. So I think focusing on that, I also think like, just, I don't have an answer for, for how to solve everything, but I think, I do think the curriculum's broken. And I, ideally one day, you know, with the Mark Zuckerbergs and Elon Musk of the world, they're going to have some influence on what changes, um but I think, yes, making friends being in a going to a public school and and going through that is extremely important and I, and I find just being able to connect with friends of all you know types, whether it was again kids that were in trouble or kids that are you know more academically uh intelligent, whatever it may be it was it was good to be in that environment um and also, I think if I can go back in time, even knowing what I know now that really most of high school I didn't learn much in. I think I actually would put more focus into, uh, you know, subjects like math or English um, or just anything that like at a high level, being able to speak well, being able to, you know, uh, different types of math, even with having calculators and computers, there's still understanding how to figure out problems, um, whether it's your personal finance or whatever it may be. I think there's a, a lot of things like when it comes to business or entrepreneurship, or again, you know, your personal well being that it's important to know. So, which, which I don't think I took as seriously. Cause I was like, I'm never going to use math. I don't want to be a, you know, whatever it was, a scientist with, you know, whatever it was. So, um, I don't know that that, that would be my advice.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's great. So Jake, uh, upon my research, I actually found that you expanded into selling glow light accessories Uh, which rapidly rose in success and then declined just as fast. What happened exactly? And maybe just kind of tail onto how you selling the the 200 T-shirts evolved into that.
1: First off, to to kind of go into how how the T-shirts expanded and became more successful, this is back again when YouTube was uh, almost 10 years ago or something like that. But back when YouTube was kind of starting off and um Kanye West came out with this uh a song called Love Lockdown on the BMAs and I recorded that song and uh and basically uploaded it to YouTube and put his face on the cover and said check out the new music video and it was 5 seconds of Kanye and then <laughs> it was you know 2 minutes of me going hey guys my name's Jake check out my t-shirt it lights up blah 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 and I had a few videos that reached like 500,000 views and just orders started spewing in. Um, so
0: hold on. You, you, you literally just recording the television and then exactly. for, you I
1: basically, <laughs> I basically recorded 10 seconds of the television and then put it on a, a, a video format with 10 seconds of Kanye. And I put the, the cover photo, the thumbnail. So it was like a great Kanye, like really up close. And it was like right after it went live. So for people going on YouTube to watch the performance, I mean, I was, I was number one search result. And, uh, (laughs) this was before they had copyright, like, uh, you know, uh, crawlers and everything to make sure that you couldn't upload, you know, copyrighted stuff. Um, so I'm sure it wasn't, you can't get away with it anymore, but we did it and, or I did it and yeah, again, 500,000 views. And I mean, literally started selling $10,000 worth of shirts a week. I mean, I, I would go into the bank to, to, uh, to like withdraw money to go send to my manufacturer to buy more. And, and the banker was like, can I quit my job and work for you? This is ridiculous. (laughs) You're, you're, you're 16 years old. Uh, and I had no, I mean, I didn't know what, like, I was like, I I didn't know if it was a lot of money or not. I didn't even understand the concept of like what $10,000 was to people. And because it was, it was all going back into the business really. Anyways, I would go and have a nice lunch every once in a while, but it was all going back into business. Um, yeah, so then from there I had I had people saying, "Hey, you got to go and check out Coachella and uh, EDC Monster Massive, Monster uh Massive, which are all these like crazy ridiculous electronic uh music festivals out here." And I went with my t-shirts uh and no one really cared about my t-shirt. They were all wearing these light-up gloves and girls were wearing these crazy outfits and tutus and guys were wearing masks and it was like a carnival. I'd never seen anything like it. And I realized, okay, let's see, no one has these t shirts, right? And maybe and no one cared about my t shirts, everyone cared about the lights, and the outfits. So I saw an opportunity to start, you know, maybe pivot. So I went to the next morning, I get on my computer, and I look for people selling who's, who's like supplying this industry. And there was one company, and their website wasn't great. And they just seemed like they fell into it. So I said, okay, this is great. Like, let's I have I have money in the bank from these T-shirts. I'm going to invest everything from the T-shirts back into basically buying lights and uh, and getting going. And I again, like thinking back t- to it, like had zero understanding of making sure I had the cash to support it. Like just understanding how to even begin, who the suppliers were. I had to go to Alibaba again and find ten different suppliers for certain things and i didn't even understand the industry entirely like i saw these lights but i didn't understand people actually had put them in gloves and that was the bigger uh you know selling point so long story short turned into a, basically a rave light and accessories business where i had tutus and i had fluffy boots and i had glow sticks and lights and everything and became like one of the leading companies in that industry selling to this demo and i and i went from uh, not really knowing what I was doing and making ten dollars to $20,000 a month uh, on this website where I, I ended up opening up a store in a mall. And my best month was $50,000 between the, the website and store. And I thought this was gonna be my future and everything. And after the holidays, I, I had to renew my lease in the mall, renewed it. And this guy who has been on Shark Tank um, and me and him are actually friends now. Uh, he owns a company called Amazing Lights put me out of business in like probably record history. It was like six <laughs> months later. And he basically, I don't really don't know. He's like one of the most fascinating entrepreneurs I've ever met, but he grew this business so quickly with, I don't think any capital, maybe he he bootstrapped it, but he just did it right. He executed right. And I was a kid and he, I think he had graduated college. So he had all of his time. I was kind of one foot in one foot out. Cause at the time I was trying to go to college at the same time. And he just did, he just executed uh, magnif- magnificently and just c- continued to crush it. And basically, six months later, he took all the market share and my business was losing money. And that was kind of it for me. I decided to close the doors while I was still ahead. And um, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do because it was like a business I invested five or six years in and just had to say goodbye to it. But knowing when to say goodbye, I think it was an important piece.
0: Okay, so let's continue that. What what happened after that? Cuz I know that um you also worked at a valet. Um now how did that happen? Like what you so you went right gave that a good crack. Did you have did you have money left? And were you like were you burnt out? Did you want to break? Did you want to go on a oh holiday? Oh my god.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, god. So, so so basically what I was doing is you know, I was encouraged by my dad to you know go to college until you know this is going to be something you're going to do full time. So I went to college, and and that's the type of thing where I was kind of one foot in, one foot out, where uh, I needed to be all in or not. And um, I wasn't really doing things every day to to move the business forward. I was kind of just sitting there, and the business was doing good. I was complacent. But um, so what happened was the business essentially went under in my second year of college. Technically, by this time I had dropped out of college to pursue this, but I so so I I dropped the business. I said, "Okay, I'm done with this. I have to stop. I'm moving back to college uh full-time and but I'm not going to school. I'm just going to live there and enjoy a year and then I'll come back." And I I went there for a year and I was trying to do some other entrepreneurial stuff. I had, you know, idea after idea, kind of trying to figure out what was what was my next thing that I was going to do 100%. And and still feeling very defeated. I mean, it was, again, I like you I failed right, like essentially, I failed, regardless of making a business that was you know doing well and a six figure business it it failed, and so just trying to wrap my head around what was next um and then my lease came up, and now I'm going into like my third or fourth year technically, and i I figured you know what i if I get a job up here, I can continue to live. I'm not really advancing my career, which was a hard thing for me to think about, like if I stay up in college and have fun and you know, whatever, uh, like in work valet, I wasn't like, I wasn't going to school. So I wasn't advancing my, you know, um, education and I didn't have a business I wanted to start, but I could at least have fun. And I figured it was one more year that I'll never be able to get back. So I said, why the hell not? And when and got a job at a valet that actually made decent money, it was like 17, 18 bucks an hour after tips. And, uh, which most people would kill for in college. And you dro- drove nice cars and worked at a, five star hotel in Santa Barbara, right next to the beach. So it was a good deal. I mean, uh, in terms of like a a college job, I absolutely hated it though, because I saw a bunch of really wealthy people, successful people come in every single day. I had to drive their cars and just, I mean, I daydream, I don't think I've ever, I daydreamed so much about like what I was going to do or how to get to where these people were. I think that was actually a good thing, which in hindsight, like I look back and go, okay, that kept me motivated and thinking. I would see all the money people spend or like the cars they would drive or the lives they were living. And it, and uh yeah, some of it was superficial, but it still kept me motivated. So I worked there for a year. I worked every single holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Halloween, literally everything in the book. Uh New Year's I was working. I remember like hearing uh, people screaming at the counting down while I was outside. I worked graveyard shifts. And I did this to really just like sink into where I was at in my life and, and just remember like where I came from and that, you know, you have to work hard to get anywhere. And that whole year while I was working there, we Kickstarter was kind of a craze and going on. And there was, you know, a kid up in Santa Barbara who had a successful Kickstarter campaign. And I had, I kind of had experience with building an e-commerce business without any capital at all. So the the idea of like getting onto a a Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign and having capital and just having to kind of become successful on that seemed pretty doable as long as we weren't missing anything. Uh, and my my roommate who I was living with, Kramer, uh, was very entrepreneurial as well. And he had some other ventures back in the day, mainly offline. He was like you know tinting cars and you know selling some stuff on eBay, but. Um, both being in the same house, uh, we were just brainstorming like what we could do. And and that's where movement was really born. And after seeing he had launched a couple of Kickstarters, and you know, a handful of them were unsuccessful. And he had one that really uh hit it off and he made six figures. He made about a hundred thousand dollars on it, which I kind of helped with on the side doing marketing. And we were just like, Okay, we gotta go all in on watches. And for me, this was like my last, this was like my last chance uh at, Towards the tail end of college, so we had about three months left of college. We've been working on movement for a year or so, and we went to go launch it basically like the month that everyone was graduating. So everyone was graduating college. Oh, I got a, a job at you know wherever it was, Oracle or you know something cool, and and I was literally like I had nothing. I was going home to live with my parents, uh, and I loved them, but I didn't want to live with my parents and this was my like last chance. So we launched in the first two weeks, it was kind of slowly paced at like, I don't know, we were probably at $10,000, which is good, but like watches are expensive to make. And it was essentially even at like a $20,000 mark, we were kind of break even with all the money we had put into it and spent for marketing, etc. And towards the tail end, the last 20 days, we, we got on the popular page and we had some people write about us for press and just you know, hit a home run. And we ended that campaign at $300,000 Jeez, and just mind was blown. This is like dreams come true. Um, and we actually went to launch on Kickstarter and Kickstarter denied us for whatever reason. They were pretty picky back then. They didn't like watches, uh, unless it was like a smartwatch. So we were on Indiegogo, which was essentially like where the dead projects go. So our, our hopes and dreams were pretty much almost demolished right after Kickstarter said no. They said no twice. And then we were like, okay, let's just execute exactly how we were talking about. Maybe change a few things up, but let's not give up. Let's do this to the best of our ability. And uh, if at the end of the day, it doesn't result in a success, at least we can go, you know, at least we know why.
0: Are you saying you launched on Kickstarter or you didn't launch on Kickstarter? You launched on Indiegogo.
1: So we applied, they they declined us and and are very vague. And then we, we rebuttaled. And they, um, or appealed whatever. And then, and then they declined again. And that was pretty much it for us, uh, on Kickstarter. Right. And I just remember like, oh man, that was, that was one of the worst days. Cause I remember putting, you just spent an, uh, a year's worth of time and energy and my, I was in credit card debt and debt from the last business. I had no money to my name. I was ready to go work anywhere I had to, to pay off my credit card. And I got declined before it even like, before the game even started. And I just remember thinking, like, why, why is why is this happening again? Like, I feel like I'm just getting the shit end of the stick over and over. Um, so I was pretty upset.
0: Walk us through that. So you you um, you said that you ended up um, after the campaign got three hundred thousand. Is that correct? And was that on Indiegogo?
1: Yeah. So that was on Indiegogo. Uh, yeah, just about three hundred thousand dollars in funding, which is essentially just pre-orders. So people pre-ordered the watches. Got it. Uh, and it gives us enough time to go and make the watches. Cause, um, otherwise like right now we're ordering based off of like what demand we think we're going to have. But when you're starting off, you have no demand. So you need someone to come and give you money, uh, and pre-order essentially for a product that will not get to them for, you know, a certain amount of time, but they're aware of it, uh, beforehand.
0: Okay. So we're going to park the crowdfunding campaign conversation for now. I, I'm going gonna, to, we might go back and forth in this, but what I want to rewind a little bit to is from t shirts to watches. Now, that's a pretty big leap in my mind, especially when you're creating an original watch design. What sparked interest to go for the watch?
1: Yeah, so I think the t-shirts was something I really fell into, right? Like that was just an accidental like, oh, this is cool. I want to I want to sell cool stuff. And the watches was more of a I've always liked fashion. Um, you know, there's a handful of brands out there, um, you know, the Nixons of the Worlds, Movados, and a handful of others that I really liked uh, from an aesthetic uh, design but the price was just too inflated, uh, because they sold to retailers and those retailers had the market up. So, and I didn't understand that at the time I, I did research and was like, Oh, like, this is why watches are so expensive. Um, and I just also looked at some of these brands and said, they're, they're not really hitting my demo. Like I know my, my demographic wears some of these brands, but they don't own my demo. It's very a very niche, uh, market that they have within my demo. So for me, it was like, listen, I liked fashion. Um, and I I wanted to start a company within, you know, accessories, fashion, and watches just seemed like the most fitting thing for me. Um, I think where I was very fearful and like, you know, your, your listeners are maybe more on the design side, but like other than Photoshop, I really didn't have a ton of design experience. And I wasn't sure if you needed some, you know, a 10 year of, of design experience or if you just needed to have some of your own inspiration and if your own inspiration resonated with the demographic, I just wasn't sure like how things got started. And then I would read when you go and read about how fashion designers get started or, or different brands. Like a lot of these guys have started very similarly, uh, to, to me and, and many others is just kind of just trying and hacking at it. And it ends up that if you're, if you have a, a certain taste, it's it's likely that there's other people that, are similarly interested in that same, you know,
0: aesthetic. Mm, okay. And how would you describe your demo?
1: So it's men and women anywhere between 18 and I'd say 35, but we, we've to watches are, uh, you know, one of the things, one category that kind of goes to all ages. Um, and it's very aspirational and fashion forward is what I like. A lot of our stuff is very either modern or minimal. Um, but I think people who really like fashion and will like our brand, people who are fashion forward and think about what they're, you know, what accessories they we're going to wear head to toe or just what they're, what they're wearing, whether it's a cup of coffee or it's, you know, going out, uh, at night for, you know, dinner and drinks with some friends, you're thinking head to toe from socks to shoes, to your watch, to any other accessories and clothing that you're wearing. So someone like that, not someone who just kind of throws on whatever and then leaves the house.
0: Mm. I'm definitely in your demo, and uh, <laughs> that's why I was very much drawn to your brand. Um, okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty technical part of the watch. So how did you source the physical products or parts to make your first watch?
1: Yeah, so the way that a lot of a, a lot of manufacturing is done, from my experience, um, is that there's a manufacturer or assembler who essentially puts the watches together for the most part or any product at that, they, assemb- they do the final assembly of it all. So they essentially source, you know, the leather is made from someone and the, you know, the, the actual case is made from someone else. And, and, and sometimes it's done in house. Like they do some components, but, um, it was all in Alibaba and, uh, we just went after talking to people, vetting them, trying to figure out where and who and what, uh, was the best. And I, I think, there was limited information and research back then, even Alibaba wasn't like, there was a lot of people just scamming, um, scamming people. But for us, I think we really focused on, okay, who can we communicate with the best, right? Like who are we going to actually be able to have a conversation with, understand our design, you know, elements and changes, because if, if they're not understanding, you know, just basic communication with us, uh, because of the language barrier, then it's gonna be very hard to have a relationship and, and come out with, you know, quality products.
0: Sure. So on that note, there's I think that's such a massive fear for people that want to source a product on Alibaba. Um how did you find someone that you could communicate with and which led you to trust them?
1: So I think it was I mean that was one element of it, but it was it was just reaching out. You reach out to you go and look at their websites or their Alibaba pages and there's, you know, kind of, it it has different levels of ratings for who's a gold star or this Mm. and that. And I don't know how much all of it matters, but I would just do research, figure out pricing, figure out, um, I kind of, you know, I'd go and source 30 or 40 different manufacturers and I'd find my favorite five and, and I'd use the information from all of them to kind of weed out. Okay. This person's offering, you know, $10 cheaper than this guy. There's, there's gotta be something wrong here. He's, he's using, you know, not the greatest quality, even though some of them tell you the best quality. Like I just, I wasn't necessarily sure I, I believed each one. So it was just a process of going, going, and, and then getting samples and seeing the samples in person. But we only sourced samples from one manufacturer in the beginning. Um, and I think this kind of goes back to minimal viable product, where for us, we found someone who we, who was producing quality watches. They sent us samples of other stuff they had done. So we had belief in what they c- could produce. We had belief in their design. Uh, and, and again, the way to communicate over the years, we've gone with bigger and, and better because some of these guys who can produce watches just couldn't do the quantities that we were started. We started to get to, so it was important for us to go and find people who, you know, not only are producing in quality, but also could keep up with the the demand, uh, for a business that has scaled so quickly like us.
0: For sure. Okay. So yeah, that's really, really insightful.
1: I think minimal viable product, like. Uh, I think the book's called zero to one, uh, by Peter Thiel. It's a good lesson of just, it's, it just taught, and there's other articles and books on it, but you're not going to get to the finalized product overnight. It just, it doesn't, it, it hardly happens. And in fact, some of the changes that you make are dictated by the end consumer. So, and and this, there's like science on this. I mean, Facebook does it, Uber does it. Apple does it everyone does it um Uber didn't come out with a full you know Uber app and Uber Eats and everything else they came out with a very limited service and and as customers they saw demand and the way customers used it they make iterations on that um and likewise I think for a physical product it's a little harder cuz what you don't want to do is come out with a product that is shit and then get complete backlash but you can do your due diligence to a, a certain point and If you're limited, you're limited. I wouldn't wait two years to come out with a product because, you know, you you need to like we never flew to China to be honest in 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 the early days. We just had uh, them send samples and validated them in that sense. Um, Now we go to China more frequently and it's more helpful. But um, I think the minimal viable product piece is just really important for people starting off.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because I bang on about this all the time. It's it's kind of like you know i never thought i'd be a writer and have now written two books i never thought i'd be a speaker and now i've spoken all over the world in over 60 events and the question i get the most of during q and a and i'm usually speaking about design or you know how to get a job as a designer or how to get a mentor the question that i get the most by far still to this day is how did you start writing or how did you get your first book out and i always just going about exactly what you said it's it's if you want to be in this case a writer then write every single day you don't get good and you can't get a product to be good um, without constantly iterating and i would often reference my first giant thinkers.com website which was horrible it was (laughs) i (laughs) created it within um i had a chat with my mate on a thursday night we were just bouncing ideas, and he was just like, "Oh, you know, so many people are writing to you." He was telling me. He said, "Why don't you just create a blog?" And I'm like, "Oh, what would I call it?" You know. So we just started talking, and then I was like, "Screw it, I'm gonna do it." So sat down on Saturday. By Sunday, it was done, and it was just a place to hold my articles. And fair enough, the first week only two people read it, confirmed by Google Analytics. <laughs> it was uh, probably my mum and my sister, <laughs> but. You know that's that's how it is, and now it just looks it looks totally different and it it is about that, so I guess where I'm getting to is there's a fear involved to launching you know your first iteration. What would you say to people then to because I mean I'll admit I'm a perfectionist, I'm sure there's an element in all of us um what what's your advice to getting over that and to releasing that very first? rough as guts sometimes version
1: i think you just have to you have there has to be compromise in areas and i think if it's affecting if it's affecting the like the time frame for certain things drastically um then you know you should reconsider if if maybe we just go live with it now you know like if there's something and even we that happens every day in our business now as as we've scaled there's certain initiatives that we want to do that we're just You know, we start, we start them out and we go, you guys, unfortunately, we're still young and this is, we just don't have the resources to accomplish this. Uh, We either scrap it and come out with this, you know, next year, or we don't do whatever we wanted to do and, and kind of piece it together. And, you know, there's certain times where we go, no, this needs to be done all at once to get them to, to get the right value. But more often than not, I think we come out with something or, or plan around something if we're limited on it. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think you just have to to know yourself and, and be self-aware enough to, to go, okay, I just got to go with it. And if it's fear that's holding you back and you realize that, then that's where you're like, okay, I, I just got to go. If you, if you feel the product is fundamentally not ready for the end consumer and therefore it's going to get bad, you know, feedback, then that's another, another thing. But, um, and, and physical products are a little harder sometimes because again, you, Sometimes you have to get it right out the gate, but I think you'd be surprised. I mean, to your point, like your website, my website, you know, some of the products I've released in the past starting off, you know, they're, they're significantly improved over, over the years. And as, as you learn, and even from design, I mean, there's colors we've changed on certain watches over the, over a certain period of time, just because we get feedback, right? Like we wouldn't have known that without releasing a watch into the wild, um, so, yeah,
0: mm, it reminds me of that quote, I forgot who said it, but it, it's something along the lines of if you're not embarrassed by your first iteration, you've shipped too late, yeah. Um, yeah which which I love, um, but yes, valid point about still
1: yeah i I love it, and also just like, and i I don't have great examples of this, but i I try and look at any you know drastic, crazy business decision or or uh or um, like conflict as you can track it back to some like a very easy black or white, uh, solution. So like even looking at, um, you know, you're like, well, how does someone get so good at, at something? Right. Like, or how do I know when to just, how did you learn how to do, you know, be so good at speaking or writing, or how did you learn how to, you know, be a great marketer? Uh, and you look back to like athletes, right? Like when athletes start off professional athletes, they're horrible in the beginning, right? Like they just, it's just practice. And over time, they become better and better and better. If you just look at it like that, like no one starts off being the next Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan. And it's like, it takes time and energy and years of, of being strict in practice. And I think it's, it's the same exact thing. Like I'm fortunate that, I think a lot of us are fortunate that we have the internet now because we're learning. And in 10 years from now with the internet and just, just starting and doing it, if you start now, 10 years from now, I think we're going to be pretty amazed with where we're at and what we've learned. And I also think that to your point earlier about mentors, it's important to surround yourself with very, very smart people if you can. Um, whether it's someone who's in an industry that you want to be in and just surrounding yourself with them, whether it's a, a pen pal and just you know making friends with someone online and having a phone call with them every once in a while, or it's just your friendly neighborhood, you know, designer or entrepreneur or someone who maybe isn't the end be all, you know, the end all be all mentor that you want, but they are a stepping stone to give you some insight and, and a different way of thought than you would have received um, at your current state. I, I find that all the time with me is like, I have mentors throughout my life. It's never been just one person because I feel like for it to be one person, I'd have to talk to, you know, someone like, a I don't know. Mark Zuckerberg or something like who's so high up there because that's where I want to be one day or something. But it's been different mentors who have helped me throughout my life for different, you know, areas of my life, whether it's, you know, family, friends, life balance, uh, exercise, health, or it's business and it's specific to e-commerce or fashion. Like there's different people for everything and, uh, you're not going to find one to to help you with everything.
0: Yeah. Super great advice. And completely agree. You know, the, the saying that Jim Rohn, um, is well known for around. We are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Is is totally that. And um, sometimes people are toxic, and sometimes people um, are super helpful. And it can be as little as a email or, or a ten to fifteen minute conversation that can change the course um, of of your life. In that they've made many of the mistakes for you. So yeah, totally love mentorship, mate. We could talk about that um, for for ages. Um, What is your advice for those who are marketing their first batch? And this might link with the Indiegogo type of crowdfunding thing. But when you look at so many products that are out there that are great, but are unsuccessful as a business because they don't know how to market, which, you know, for me, in my experience anyway, it's someone once told me that you should spend most of your budget on marketing because you can have a great product. But if it's just hidden under your bed, it's kind of like, it's just a great product sitting under your bed. Like no one knows about it. So how do you reach your audience?
1: I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, I don't think it's as black and white, but it's like, there's a good middle ground of, Mm. okay, you need a good product, but if no one's coming to see it, you're not going to sell any of it. Um, and likewise, you can have the whole world coming to see a product, but if it's a shitty product, no one's going to buy it. Hmm. Um, so I think the best way to do it, if you can, is, um, if, you know, this is hard because I, one thing I've learned is like, you need, you need capital, you need money to, uh, to do things, uh, and, and market and, or it's just easier. I won't say you need to, cause I didn't really have much, but uh, so that, to go and raise some type of friends and family rounds just to have some money to create that w- a pretty website to have good you know imagery of the product and then to spend some on marketing, uh, it's really really helpful right. Um, now you may not want to put your family members in that or have family members who have access to, to to you know capital. You don't need a ton. I mean it could be, I mean this is still a lot, but you it could be 50000 dollars between however many people. Um, I didn't go that route because I didn't know where to start there. If I were to ever do something again later down the road, I would go and probably race some sort of, of uh you know round through some type of investors because I now know the tools. But with that said, going back, um, if you're gonna be scrappy and have minimal capital, you essentially have to find ways to bring in traffic uh either for free or spending every dollar you spend ideally making you know, at least one back, ideally two, three or four. Right. Um, so for us, it was like finding websites where we could go and be very scrappy. And we paid people on, uh, on like, uh, outsourced websites to go and scrape data or, uh, post our products on forums and just do all this type of crazy stuff that we were getting leads and essentially customers in from, Uh, another big thing is like uh, the reason why Indiegogo and crowdfunding is so crucial for this is two reasons. Number one, you can, you, all you need is samples. So the only upfront investment you need is actual, the physical sample good, which is typically, you know, somewhat minimal. Um, it could be a few thousand dollars and from there it's make a video and telling people that, Hey, come buy my product, but it's not going to get to you until X amount of time. If like that's the only means of of marketing and capital you have, like it's not a bad way to do it. it that, that website, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, those sites already get a ton of traffic, so there's already qualified people browsing, and you get the ability to tell your story and and you know uh, and basically take orders and have a, a payment you know a processing whatever it is that they have, whether it's PayPal or a credit card. So it's a pretty Streamlined solution for you um, to start, and that's really what we did. What we did though is we had that. On top of that, we had people. We were driving traffic from very bootstrapped ways. We, you know, I'd, I'd have 50 kids on, 50 kids that we were friends with. Uh, I tell them, oh, I'll give you, you know, 50% off a watch if you give me your Facebook password, and I'm going to invite all your friends to this uh, event for for the launch of movement, right? So we'd have, I don't know, we had like 30,000 people on Facebook on an event, all just from like being scrappy. Uh, we talked about I remember my Kramer, my business partner said, should we go to the library, the school library and pay people five bucks just to invite all their friends to, uh, to this event? And I don't know that he actually did it cause it was kind of <laughs> awkward, but it's that type of thinking. And then even to invite friends, here's another thing is like Facebook makes you do it one by one we figured out this uh, like chrome extension hack that basically did it all at once so it was 1000 2000 however many people however many friends one had it would invite them all at once so it was little things like that you just have to be scrappy and not and just not sit there if you're sitting there doing nothing like there's something that that can be done to make you money whether it's walking down the street and then passing out you know handwritten urls to your kickstarter page like there's something you could do um, So, and I think with this day and age from Instagram to Snapchat to, you know, every, any other, you know, medium that's out there, there's something somewhere that is, there's an opportunity. And I think there's more now I'm not as familiar with it because those aren't scalable once you get to a certain stage. Like at my stage, I'd rather go and spend my money, uh, with an, an influencer, you know, marketer or on a, you know, a, a platform because I can go and spend more, but, um, But anyway, starting off, like you just have to be scrappy and get out there and do it. And you'll learn. Like You'll go and you'll try 10 things. One will work, but that one thing will get you five orders. And you got to be okay with that.
0: Yeah, that's cool, man. I love it. I love those uh, marketing hacks, especially utilizing your immediate network and trying to find what motivates them, whether it be, as you said, 50% off their watch. Totally. And then you can tap into their network, which is... um, yeah, I guess that virality effect, um, in, in some respects. Um, now this is kind of like the direct to consumer approach. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Um, because it seems to have worked really well for you to disrupt, um, the, the marketplace.
1: Yeah. So for us, it was a couple of things. Number one, I mean, being a broke college kid, I could not afford the watches that were out there to begin with. So it was, it was like a, a need that, uh, you know, s- scratching my own itch. And so that, that made sense there also realizing like, okay, let's, let's have, like, this is competitive advantage and we're able to do this because of our direct business. That was great as well. I don't think I quite understood that as much starting off. It was more of like, we just want to scratch our own itch and, and be competitive, but then realizing like, Oh, if we do this direct. We're actually not, we actually, uh, don't have to worry about that retail markup, um, so it just gave us leverage there, and then also not realizing that, oh shit, e-commerce is blowing up right now. It's a great place to go and invest time and energy uh, into building a brand and and you can actually have a ridiculous amount of competitive advantage if you're able to do it successfully so for us and then and then just learning about the benefits, I mean, we control the the brand, we control the communication from our brand to the end consumer, the way they shop. You know, if you go into some stores for brands that are distributed globally, you go into a store and the sales rep won't know anything about the brand. Uh, the way it's displayed is sometimes, you know, doesn't really complement the brand. It's a form of distribution and it makes money, but it, there, it doesn't elevate the brand uh, more often than not. And for us, People come to our site, they come to our social platform. We do Facebook Lives, whatever it may be. They're buying from us, they read about the brand from us, and it's just a better uh, experience. If they want to return a watch or if they want to exchange a watch, they go back and talk to us. Uh, it's just an easier experience. So uh, there's a lot of advantages to it, and then being able to like being able to start a direct online business only. I mean, we're pretty much like almost entirely direct right now. Uh, is very difficult to do because it is so competitive, such a competitive landscape, and most most companies have some type of brick and mortar offline presence. But for us, um, it was our bread and butter and what we knew, and we hadn't raised, we haven't raised capital, so it's it's it was like let's just continue to go direct. Awesome, which is more affordable too.
0: Now, Jake, imagine if you were in a room with ten people, all different ages, different genders and demographics, but all working. Out of the box thinkers with exciting ideas. What are the, let's say, top two or three lessons you would pass on in order for them to grow their business ideas from $0 to a million within 12 months?
1: Um, zero to a million in 12 months.
0: Yeah. Any key lessons you would pass on as uh, crucial lessons that you've learned?
1: I think that the network effect and going and talking to successful people who have done it is number one, most important. Like I would, I would just go and I mean other entrepreneurs or other successful people want to see that you've made an attempt and typically don't want to, um, talk to people who are just, who are kind of just all talk. But if you can get touch with people who have done it before, I do it all the time. Even now I cold reach outs or I ask for introductions. And I just go and pick their brain. Cause if you're thinking about a hundred things, they'll narrow it down to, you know, a few of like the best places to start and then go talk to five other people with, you know, similar backgrounds and they'll give you their top few places to start. And then you could align and be like, Oh, they all said, go and start here first. Uh, I'm going to go and do that versus just taking one person's opinion. So that that's like, I I swear to God, more than anything is just talking with people who have done it before. And, uh, in our, our, honest, good, genuine people, I think it's very, very important. Awesome. Um, so that would probably be, be like the the biggest thing really. Cause I mean, so many elements come out of that from design to product to marketing to anything else in between. Um, I will say that like, you know, I used to be a little more aggressive on, uh, Oh, I, I could sell anything as long because I, I know how to, you know, market it. But I do think that I, I may have, um, I think that it's equally important or there's some type of blend of like having a really, uh, you know, good looking store and good looking imagery of the products. Like I feel, I see stores online now that don't do as well because the imagery isn't set up or the the store isn't set up. And I think with so many e-commerce stores now and the, you know, the designs looking better and better with Shopify and Wix and all these other, uh, platforms, I think the demand of like, a a very pretty website is a little higher than it used to be because back in the day it was like you had pretty shitty templates and it was like just doing it together now there's tools to make a website look pretty damn good and professional where someone could come should come to your website and be like this they could have you know 25 people or there could be one person behind here i really don't know Mm. like your website should look good enough to have that Um, but I think it's also important to focus, to know you're focusing on the right things. Don't, don't waste, you only have so many hours in a day. Um, if there's a little tiny thing that you you are trying to perfect, that isn't going to be, uh, incremental to the business, then don't worry about it. Focus on the product imagery, focus on, you know, the homepage where people are going to land, focus on things that really matter. Not, you know, Oh, the contact us at the bottom of the page is, you know, blue. We want it to be red.
0: Yeah. Love it. Totally on board, mate. It's the, uh, the whole eighty twenty rule in a way, isn't it? Um, what are the 20% totally. of things that are going to make 80% or more of the uh, impact or, or optimizing uh, the results that you're after? Um, Absolutely. A few more questions for you, Jake. A question I ask all my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Jake Casson, perhaps the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him?
1: Yeah, I think we talked about this earlier is I'd go back to high school and just uh, – emphasize spending more time in certain, uh, areas, whether it was math, English or certain areas that I I thought, um, again, being able to, you know, have a good vocabulary and speak well and math and uh, kind of a few things in between. Um, I wish I would have taken it more seriously because I definitely just like, it wasn't that I was, uh, wasn't capable. It was just that I was kind of bored and didn't see the point. So I didn't apply myself. And I wish I would have just applied myself a little more in certain areas, but, um, you know, I can't complain.
0: Well, it sounded like you just almost needed more context as to how math would help you, how science would help you. You you know, I think if you knew that, oh, goodness me, that had helped me in business, which was, you know, where your passions, um, were kind of pulling you towards, um, you know, that's, that's a, it's an interesting point. I think for me as well, if I, if I would have thought, huh, this would lead me to become a better problem solver totally, or a better design thinker.
1: It was almost like, Hey, I'm not good at this. There's the majority of people here are maybe better than me. I'm not going to be an expert here. Like I have no strategic advantage of learning this because I'm not going to be the best at it. So I'm going to move on and find something that I will be the best at where in hindsight, it was like, listen, if I would have known that, and I would have studied that, and even if I was still below average, I'd be significantly better than I am today at it. And I would be more dangerous in, you know, my skill sets, because it'd be even, you know, wider than it is now. Um, where and I think it's, it, it is hard, because, uh, you know, if there would have been more people, it's just so it's so hard. I mean, yeah, if, if I think now entrepreneurship is such like a a cool new thing. You have the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world. You have, you know, people like Tim Ferriss and Elon Musk and all these guys who are like more in the public eye where I think now you have access to that. It was very, very hard for me. I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. You know, I knew my dad was an entrepreneur, but like me and my dad, like I would never have, I could never have gone into that industry. So I felt still distant from like, Oh, I can't do that. Um, but yeah. So I think context, your point, which I think hopefully now, whether it's, you know, in school or it's listening to your podcast or someone else's, that context is, is going to be there some somewhere and be, you know, reiterated at some point.
0: Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? That person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential?
1: Um, I mean, I, Again, going back to like where it all started, my dad for sure has been really helpful. My uncle as well. Um, both my dad did the the credit stuff. My, my uncle was in real estate. I think just so. So nothing that I necessarily was going for, but just uh, pushing the kind of bettering yourself, thinking outside the box, going against the grain. It wasn't just go to college, get a degree, you know, work for someone. I mean, it was almost never that. Um, and just watching, watching that way of thought, I think it was like, I was looking for a different way to, to make it rather than go and work for someone. And then from there, it's just been a hit again. I think I found different mentors, uh, for, for different things. And it's been being in Los Angeles. We chose, uh, again, I'm from Valencia, which is an hour North. My co founders from San Diego, a few hours South. And we chose LA, um, really without knowing the heart of LA at all. Because we figured there's got to be some successful people here. Let's, let's see what like happens after a year or two. Um, and even though it's more expensive and I think a higher stress environment here without the people that we're surrounded with, that we can go and grab coffee with or grab a drink with without a doubt, movement would be a different beast today. Like a hundred percent best decision moving LA, uh, or any type of metropolitan area where you can go and meet and talk with people without a doubt.
0: Mm. Yeah, love that, mate. What's next for you and everything you're involved in, coming to the end of 2017, moving on to 2018 and beyond? What's happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in love with movement. I love what we're doing. Uh, and in the year strong, uh, we just came out with some jewelry, some bracelets, bangles for women, which is really exciting. And, and those are doing well, which is which is awesome to see. It's like a it's another new category for us. We now have watches, sunglasses, bracelets. Um, and yeah, today, I mean, today is literally cyber Monday, so, um, having a strong day today as well, but every single year I get the opportunity to to be at a brand like this and and continue to grow it and and do things that so many people kind of have have dreamed about and I have dreamed about. And sometimes I have to pinch myself and just realize, uh, that I'm, you know, not to be so stressed all the times and that I'm in the, you know, enjoy the process, but, um, I'm excited for 2018 more so than any other year. I think there's so much potential for us. I think, again, we're strong enough. We're aligned. The company's aligned. We know areas that we need to uh, execute on. And it's, it's just going to be a really, really uh, solid and strong year. So uh, I'm, I'm just stoked for the, for the holidays and then, uh, and then get started on 2018.
0: How can listeners get in touch with you online?
1: I'm probably on Instagram more. So if someone DMs me there, I'm probably going to answer that first, to be honest. But I also have a website, um, which is just jakekassan.com. Uh, J-A-K-E-K-A-S-S-A-N.com. Uh, so you can email me there or my Instagram is jakekassan, just
0: uh, all one word. Amazing, man. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate uh the one on one and more so that we were able to record this um huge fan of you huge fan of movement uh I've loved your products for a few years now um myself i'm a I'm a personal um customer of you guys and um you know I'm glad we just were able to tee this up because you are the real deal, my friend and mate you you bring so much um experience to the table at your age it's um truly inspiring
1: awesome brother, thank you
0: thanks for tuning in giants i hope you enjoyed that chat with jake feel free to say hello to him on instagram i'm sure he'd love to hear from you now a little teaser for our next guest he is well it's kind of not really a teaser he is an 11 time world surfing champion holds the record as the youngest at age 20 to win the title and the oldest at age 39 to win the title as well He is truly a living legend on and off the ocean, an inspiration to millions of people and chatting with him really blew me away. So look out for that episode next, out very soon. Briefly, before you race off, I highly encourage you to grab yourself a movement watch at 15% off with free shipping by going to mvmt.com slash giant thinkers. If you couldn't be bothered typing that, it's all good. Head to the blog post of this episode and click the link there. We're heading into the Christmas shopping period and if you're like me and hate the stress that comes with parking at the shops, then dealing with retail crowds, you can skip all that and grab watches for you and your loved ones. They make the perfect gift for men and women and as mentioned, start at just $95. The 15% off with shipping is automatically activated when you visit this exclusive link Thanks to Jake, head to mvmt.com slash giant thinkers. For any questions or if you'd like to send me a message, do so via Instagram. My handle is thegiantthinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Jake who said, You've just got to try and hack away at it. If you have a certain taste, it's likely that there are some other similar people out there who will be drawn to that very same thing.